This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Well, good afternoon, and thanks so much for coming. I'm very happy to be able to introduce a special guest in that this is my best friend going all the way back to childhood days in Detroit. Uh, Ray's a very unusual fellow in a good way, and he'll tell you all about it. Uh, he's from the Muhammad Ali School of Modesty. Uh, you're going to hear quite a story. Once you do something that's very successful, people tend to identify you with that and only that, and they have no idea what was behind it. Uh, Ray's most famous for Ghostbusters, but what many people don't know is that uh, he was a top guitarist for a living from childhood days. We went all the way back to Motown, Hollywood, or Holland in Detroit, came out here to California, and before Ray officially retired, which is not really true, he was number one first call on guitar in Los Angeles, which is saying a lot. That's right. So, and we have, uh, by the way, now I'm here who can tell the story of other famous guitarists. <laughs> but at any rate, um, Ghostbusters, like I said, was huge. But the other thing that people don't really know is that uh, Ray had six gold albums back to back where he was producer, writer, arranger, engineer, studio owner, and the artist. So, I beg your pardon, I told you, seven. Let's get it straight. So anyway, there's quite a story to tell here and I'm gonna let uh, Ray kind of kick off the rest of it. Let's have a hand for Ray Parker. And the principal said, well, there's an alternative 
to what you can do. You can take a music class. Before that, I was not interested in music at all. I, I think I took a piano lesson with my neighbor to walk in the store, which was actually the first one that took a piano lesson. And turned me on. The piano is too big, it's heavy, you can't take it with you. I just wasn't that turned on with the piano. And so I went to the music class, and there was a guy named Mr. Kirby, Alfred T. Kirby. I'll never forget his name, because he plays a big role in my life. And uh, at that moment, he looked at me and he said, uh, what instrument would you like to play? Well, I wasn't so concerned about the instrument I wanted to play, but what I noticed in that classroom were two of my friends who I didn't even know were interested in taking music to school. A guy named Ollie Brown was playing the drums, which at that point he had a snare drum and a single that he assembled that he hung from stealing. And that was his drum kit. And there was my other best friend, Nathan Watts. Right, who I knew even before Ollie and Nathan was playing trumpet. And I was looking at them like, really? <laughs> but you don't play the trumpet. And Nathan says, God, I want to play the trumpet. And it hadn't even occurred to me, how did you guys get into music? How did you guys find it? So anyway, Mr. Kirby looked at me and says, okay, well, if you like, would you like to take this class? And yeah, I'll have to go to gym class. I'll take the music class, you know. And I, I could have not been less interested in music, and I think I projected that to Mr. Kirby, and he saw that in me. And he said, what instrument would you like to play? So I looked around the room, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm a small kid, this is the lightest thing ever. He said, the flutes are all gone. I think the girls had all taken the flutes, right? I said, so what we got next? There were no oboes at our school. They just didn't have that in the curriculum, but they had a clarinet. So I chose the clarinet. And Mr. Kirby, I think within the first week or two, he looked at us, and I'll never forget, he, he said, we're going to form a jazz rock band. And it's going to be you, you, and you, because we all knew each other. Right? And I'm looking at all, and I'm looking at Nathan, like, really? We're going to have a band? Now, what I didn't know for maybe another 10 years is I figured this out. And I guess this is race theory, because I didn't get it, an actual confession from Mr. Kirby. but. He put together this band, it was the three of us, and he named the band the Stingrays. Ah, Ray's name is in there. Not Ollie, not Nathan. He named the band the Stingrays. And I think he did that because he could tell that I was the most least interested in music out of the three of us. Right? So he named the band after me to get me going, which I thought was very clever. We played PTA meetings, orphanages, uh, we played many, many, many different things. And it really turned me on. And believe it or not, contrary to popular belief, I know you can't believe it, I was a bad dude on a clarinet. I mean, I had first chair in all six. I mean, I was first chair call player. I could read flashbacks on the, on the clarinet. So later, you want Sylvester to look pretty too? Is that what you're saying? Nobody wants to see Sylvester like that. They want to see me. You want to see Sylvester? She says, I, oh, Don wants to see me. The legendary Larry G was up for me. And still, I like that better too. <laughs> it just looks better. So anyway, we played the PTA meetings, orphanages, things like that nature, and we really, I started to really, really get into the music now. I thought it was just a wonderful thing, you know. And I didn't have to dance with the girls at gym class. But there was just one thing wrong with that. We, we had some kind of talent show, and Sylvester was there with his band, right? And I don't know how Sylvester got one up on me, but as Sylvester's band, he was playing the piano and they had chords. I never really heard chords. We had a, we had a clarinet, 
a trumpet, and a drummer who had a bird cage that he's down with a snare drum as them. Well, Sylvester's band had a bass player, and we actually heard a bass note way down low. I've never seen an electric bass. And he had a Fender, what, Wurlitzer? Yeah. He had the Wurlitzer. They were playing chords in the bass, and then they had a drummer who wasn't that great, he wasn't good as our drummer. And they had this guy, Jose, who was playing his saxophone. By this time, I had transferred from the clarinet, not transferred, but I started including the saxophone in with my clarinet work, because pretty much the same fingering. And my dad really liked the saxophone. And so there was this guy, Jose McCune, who turned out to be one of my best friends. And boy, he was just good, good, good. I mean, spit was coming out of his mouth. And the saxophone just had that old, ghetto, you know, Alabama sound. It was just funky. Everybody in the band, Jose, had that ghetto, black sound. He <laughs> just had that thing. So to make a long story short, so that's just the band. They smoked our band. <laughs> that would be the first and the last time in life I'd ever get smoked. The Sylvester band smoked our band like silly. So bad that Sylvester liked our drummer, but that time Ollie had a drum set. Sylvester called, I guess you call Ollie, right? And asked Ollie to join his band because his drummer wasn't happy. Everything else they had was happening, but the drummer wasn't happy. Ollie sat in the corner crying and he was all upset. And you know, he was like, he didn't want to tell us that he wanted to leave our band and go to the bigger band. Now, even though this sounds like life's crisis, things like that, we're all older people now, we're years just go pop, 10 years ago. At this time, this all happened within like 12 months, you know what I mean? It was all of this stuff that happened. It seemed like it lasted five years, but it was really only 12 months or 18 months. So I looked at all that, I said, you know what, you should, you should go join Sylvester's band because he has a better band. And you know what, I don't know if I'm playing this music thing anyway, but I gotta go to Hollywood, you know, because I'm gonna be a star. At some point, I make a lot of money. I gotta have a house. Ever since I was seven years old, I told my, my uncles and my cousins and my dad, I, I said, I think the stork made a mistake. Now, every, nobody's perfect. Maybe in heaven, they made mistakes, because I think I should have been in California. I was watching Leave It to Beaver, and I noticed uh, right away, the beaver could drive his, ride his bike to school and it would be there when he came out of school. Uh, <laughs> and there were several things about that that I noticed. A, it wasn't 15 below zero when the beaver rode his bike to school. It was sunshiny and he rode his bike to school. Nobody pulled a knife out and took his thing. And me, I was like guarding my coat, like going to school in gangs. We picked each other up in the alleys. So I said to my father, where is beaver? The seven years of where's the beaver says, California, California. I said, I'm going to Hollywood. Later, and this is a crucial part of the story, later, about a year later, I saw, you know, I was all set. Told my parents, going to Hollywood, as soon as I, you know, I'd like to go tomorrow if you don't mind. They said, no, in, in the United States, you must be 18 years old to be legally able to leave home. I said, you gotta be kidding me. I'm like, eight years old, this is 10 more years. Like, 20 lifetimes, you know. And uh, my dad did not budge on that issue. So he said, you must be 18 years old and you're on your own. I was like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do for the next 10 years? I've only been on the planet eight years and that's seemed like forever. So it really seemed like it was gonna be a whole other lifetime to me, but I was sticking firm in my beliefs that as soon as possible, I was gonna go to Hollywood. Then, I'll never forget, nine years old, Batman came on TV, was the first thing in color. And then they had this other show called The Beverly Hillbillies. Right? I'll tell you a story about a man named Jim. 
Jose could just make his thing and the crowd would be like, yeah, nigga, yeah! You know, so he had that crowd appeal. The thing too, and I just looked at him and went, yeah, interesting. I can play better than him. My tone is better. I can read the notes better. But nobody wanted to hear what I played except the symphony orchestra because when the music stopped, I stopped. My brother got a box guitar, which, which was just a cheap acoustic guitar we call it town. It could make it cost 50 bucks. And I started playing my brother's acoustic guitar when I was about 10 years old. And to electrify it, I'd take the tape recorder, take the microphone from the tape recorder, put it inside the hole of the guitar, and then turn speaker up on the tape recorder. That's my version of electric guitar. But I'll tell you one thing. The day I got my guitar, I had more ideas and more things going through my head of what I could do with this thing. Even though I didn't know how to play it yet, musically and spiritually, the guitar was calling my name and said, take me, take me, you know? And it was like we were married one-on-one. I liked it so much that I traded my $800 Busher saxophone for my brother's $50 acoustic guitar that didn't even play in time. I wish my brother was like, really? You sure you want to do that? Because we don't this going to be done. <laughs> so he took my Busher saxophone, which my father always lost his mind because my father felt like if he can play the saxophone, well, what, there is nothing else to music except the saxophone. I said, that's not true, Dad. It's a thing called electric guitar. We got to get with this. You know? Now, so I started playing electric guitar, and one of the worst things that could have possibly happened, which maybe was the best thing that possibly happened, is I played my guitar almost every day. I worked really, really hard. And I was out trying to impress some girls or something on my little bicycle, 11 years old. And in those days, if you make a fast turn on the bicycle, you stick your foot out. Well, I stuck my foot out, it, it hit the curb, snapped my ankle, and pushed, twisted my foot around. Then when I heard my ankle snap and my foot turned all the way around, I jumped immediately. But when I jumped, I stuck my leg in the back spokes of the bike, which made the bike stop and smack, broke some more bones. And then at the end of all that, I fell down on it and crushed another bone. So, <laughs> so they took me to the hospital, put a cast on me from my toe all the way up to my midsection. That's how bad I was hurt at that age. And things heal really quick when you're 11 years old. But for me, it took about eight months. That's how bad it was. But I couldn't do anything except practice my guitar for eight months. During this time, my best friend Ollie had decided, since he went to Sylvester's name, he said, Sylvester, you gotta get my boy Ray in your band. So that's what I said, Ray, the guy's playing clarinet and sax. He says, yeah, he's playing guitar now, which nobody wanted to play. Ollie didn't want me to play guitar in Nathan. I, I sort of coerced them and made them, I said, you know, I own the tape recorder. I will not record a man unless you let me play the guitar. So that's how we got to that. Well, let, let me tell that little yeah, part of the story. <laughs> anyway. Enough of me talking about me. So that's it. You talk about me. To kind of bring this home, to kind of bring this home for you, it's true that uh, for Ray, the guitar uh, in his hands was like an ex-copper in uh, King Arthur's hands. For some reason, it just magically clicked. And my band, uh, we didn't have a guitar player. I refused to have one because guitar players are notoriously out of tune. And I couldn't, even guys that could play generally are out of tune. So I couldn't stand any sound. So I said, we'll just have to be configured like the Jazz Crusaders, no guitar. So anyway, when Ollie insisted that I um, listen to his buddy, I went over to his house, and Ray could only play one song on the guitar. And that was Honky Tonk. So he plays that, and I said, well, I said, you know, I don't think you're quite ready for a band just yet. 
you know, maybe down the road. Uh, but I left, and I had a friend with me, and I mentioned to my friend even then, I said, you know what? This guy could only play one song, but I'd be doggone if he didn't play on time and in tune. And I'm not used to hearing that from guitar players. That's puzzling. And then, a few months later, uh, Ollie says, you gotta go hear my friend. I said, I already heard your friend. He says, yeah, but he's really got it together now. All right, went back, ready to play two songs. Few months go by when your kids, like you said, time goes by faster. He says, You gotta hear my friend. I said, Listen, Ollie, I'm not going over there. I've already been over there twice. He said, Well, just listen on the phone. So I listened on the phone, and this time the Temptations had a hit out called I'm Losing You. And I thought I was hearing the record when I heard the guitar part. I said, him on the phone, I said, Tell him he's hired. <laughs> and that's how we connected, and that's how we all wound up in the same band. And take it from there. Yeah. So then I joined Sylvester's band, which was uh, at that time the loosest band. The only thing corny about you know, Sylvester's like a student type thing, that you see the way he dresses and the way I dress. So he made us wear silver suits. <laughs> so if you can imagine being like 12, 13 years old in a suit, that's strange enough. But we, we, we jammed, right? We played and stuff, and, uh, did a lot of stuff. And I used to practice on the porch, and even, you know, my dad and mom, when I was in that cast, I want to go back to that. I played so much that my father had just had enough. He's my biggest supporter, my dad. Would take me anywhere to play, do anything for me. He looked at my mom, he says, you know, the, the boy plays some good guitar. I just don't want to hear any more guitar. <laughs> I just had enough. So he took my amp one day and he put it on the front porch. He said, let the neighbors deal with it. You know? <laughs> he says, I got, he's pulling double shifts before. He says, I got to get some sleep. Let the neighbors deal with it. And so I would turn that amp up, and it's still with Tony Amp on the sixth Man, I play that thing so loud outside. It was, you know, I guess when you're younger, you don't have any embarrassment, or there's no cool, you just do what you feel, you know? And some of the neighbors would get upset, get annoyed, and some people would really like it. And I'll never forget a guy came, my first professional show was coming. A guy drove down the street, heard me playing, pulled his car over, came home, he says, I get 15 bucks with that in my backyard. I was like, 15 bucks? You know, in those days, you'd get only $1.75 for raking the grass. I'm like, 15 bucks? Oh my gosh. That's 10% the cost of a new guitar. <laughs> so I got my dad to drive me over to his house, which everybody in the family was shocked. And I played for him and got my $15 shot. Now, later in life, um, my, my very, very first professional gig outside of Sylvester and all the shows we were doing. And by the way, when I say we were doing gigs and, and, and bar bands, and we had several groups that each of us would play in. So we're starting to work around Detroit, making our 20, 30 bucks a night. And we're doing a bunch of stuff. Started doing, uh, at one point, I was doing just tons of Jewish bar mitzvahs. I mean, I know I heard more Jewish bar mitzvahs than anybody Jewish. I know all the songs backwards. Bird Bagger is like the Jewish king. If you just learn to Bird Bagger, it's like you can make the weddings, you can make the bar mitzvahs, and those were big on the weekend. So I can make a couple hundred bucks in Detroit in the late 60s, early 70s, playing weddings and bar mitzvahs. Now, in the weekdays, we play clubs and do us, and on the weekends at night, we go play clubs and do us stuff. First professional gig I ever had with a group called Spinners. And this is before they went to Philadelphia, got signed. They used to be on Motown, for those who remember. And G.C. Cameron, before Felipe was the lead singer. 
and they had a tune called It's a Shame that Stevie wanted to wrote for him. And the guy brought to me some sheet music and he said, if you can play this music and the song was Fascinating Rhythm, I'll never forget it, Billy Anderson. And this was a hard song, like a jazz tune. I'm like, what's this got to do with spell? I'm like, playing three chords in the group. But anyway, if you could play Fascinating Rhythm, you got to get it. So I played the Fascinating Rhythm song for him. I had to look at it a little bit. You know, I couldn't read as well as Don P at the time. You know, but I could play Fascinating Rhythm. I got the chart done, got it done. And so I go on tour on the weekends. Well, that got me sort of into the Motown club a little bit. Then I met Bohannon. And I started working at the 20 grand. So now I'm taking you to age 13 and a half, 14. 14 now, I'm working at the 20 grand. 10 nights on, four days to clean, 10 nights on. I'll tell you the exact dollars. We're making $35 a night, 10 nights in a row, 350 cash. Okay? So you get 350 cash. I'm doing Jewish primations and weddings on the weekend. I'm making another couple hundred bucks. And let me tell you something, for a 14-year-old kid, I'm making 550, 600 bucks a week on average, okay? So I go to my father, who I love, and I said, Dad, I need no more money. I am financially independent. You keep your money. I'll buy all my own clothes, my own everything. I'm cool. I'm good to go, right? And ever since that day, I've been financially independent. I never had to go back to my dad for any money. And it was because of the work. Then, some kind of way, Again, Sylvester got a one-up on us. Somehow he got to Holland, Dozier Holland, and started doing recording sessions. I was like, what's that? What's a recording session? He says, man, you're going for three hours, so don't you guys, you plug in, you come into church, and we play it, and we get 90 bucks for three hours. I said, really? 90 bucks in three hours? We were like, scratch, rich. So I told Sylvester, still, you gotta get me into this studio thing, right? Now, by the way, while he's doing this, I started working, the, the first guy I started recording with was Marvin Gaye. And so I started working in Motown with Marvin Gaye through, you know, Michael Henderson, Wawa, and Land, all those guys. We were all writing songs, hanging at Marvin's house. But the thing that Sylvester was doing, he was doing sessions at HDH, which is Holland, Doja Holland, where they left Motown, and Victor's Records, Hot Wags. Uh, is that all? Yeah. I think there's one more, I can't give it. And that's Free the Pain, Chandler the Board, Honeycomb, a whole bunch of uh, good acts they had over there. And they were working like pretty regularly in the mornings. Now, I had done one uh, album with Marvin Gaye at 15 years old, I'll never forget. I made like $16,000 in one month. Right. Let's put that in perspective. School teachers and factory workers in Detroit at that time were making about 12 grand a year. Yeah. Well, let's make it better because. You could buy, you could buy a, a, a Porsche 911 that Bohan bought for six grand at that time. So I just made 16 grand in one month, and I'm continuing with the 20 grand, continuing those stuff. So I'm starting to rack up some big, pretty big numbers here for a 15 year old kid who couldn't, all I could spend my money on was a bicycle. Right? And the Schwinn five speed bicycle was 50 bucks. <laughs> so my dad, at that point, before I got an HDH, my dad at that point, thought I was selling drugs. <laughs> he said, that boy's playing guitar, but he ain't playing that much guitar. <laughs> so he went and got my cousin, who was mid, like 10 years older than me, to follow me around and hang out with me and see where this money was coming from. Because I had already told my dad, I don't need no more money. You think he'd be happy? I took him to buy no more clothes. I got, my, I got this. But he, he thought that I was getting into some trouble. Uh, with this innocent face, could you imagine? <laughs> 
anyway, he thought I was in trouble. So anyway, he followed me around. My cousin, they found no, everything he's doing is legitimate. We don't see any signs of any drug activity or any young pimping or anything like that. And so everybody went back to things as normal. And I'll never forget, so that's was at HDA. So you got a picture of a Jewish by Mitzvah, playing 20 grand, playing with all the axe marks, okay? I even went to State Pit, this was Robinson, but I have not cracked this HDA standard, this Sylvester doing. We cannot have Sylvester doing anything that I am doing. I just can't have it. I just can't have it. So still, get rid of the guitar player and get me. Now, I've only taken one lesson in my life on the guitar. And that was from a gentleman named Marvin Marshall. Well, guess who's playing in HDH sometimes? Not all the time, but sometimes. Marvin Marshall. All right. So I think it was one day, you know, uh, Sylvester would call me. I waited home by the phone every day. By the way, I like to stress in Detroit, we took our music very, very seriously. So when Sylvester said, if there's a break, I'm going to get you in, that means I waited by the phone. Whenever he had a session, I waited by the phone immediately. 15, half an hour before, and 15 minutes after going into the session, so he could call me and tell me that everybody's there. Now, this is everyday religiously. And again, it seemed like nine years, it was maybe three months it took before somebody wasn't going to be there. <laughs> so that's just calling me like clockwork every single day. This ain't today. Everybody's here. <laughs> I need to get this session. So one day, Marvin Bush went on tour. I was somebody. And Sylvester was there, and he'd been telling him, call my buddy Ray, call my buddy Ray. And then what happened? Tony Newton was the one who said it. Tony Newton is a famous bass player. Yeah. And uh, he's a little louder than I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, when the guy finally didn't show up for that session, Tony Newton hollered real loud, hey, why don't you call that guy Sylvester knows? Yeah, he's telling him, yeah, Sylvester's been telling about that thing. I called him for months. Yeah, he's called that guy Sylvester's been telling about that thing. Two shows a night. 
Next thing I know, whoop, it's glove box, it's bad weed, everything on top of it. And I said, Mr. James, you said you weren't going to smoke that? Play the rest of the He goes, shut up, boy. <laughs> so he smoked it there. I'm getting the contact. I'm high out of my mind. Sitting so there smoking I had no clue at all that this guy was, as you know today, James James. I mean, I knew his name was James James, but it wasn't a big deal. You know? And Beans Bowles from the band, all the collective guys that people really, really honor today. Uh, Robert White, I'll never forget. Like Sylvester told you, one song I can play right was I'm Losing You by the Temptations. And, and at a session at HDH, I looked at Margaret White, who I had just zero respect for. And I had zero respect for everybody, by the way, because I had a huge ego, which I will attest to at the time. Oh, you're cool. Yeah, but I had a huge ego. I wasn't an offensive ego, but I had a... When I met Don P, I was 18, I had a shirt that said, I'm an effing genius, and I wore it still. <laughs> still no letters on the black shirt. And then I had a red shirt with gold letters on it, and I wore that shirt to the bank and everywhere. So let's not, we didn't have a confidence problem here. And so I'm sitting at the session with Robert White, and I'm saying, play a little guitar. I said, go watch this. He says, boy, young man, that's really good. I played the original record. Let me show you something. Right? And I thought about this big. I just told Robert White how to play this song. Him and he was how to play their song. So later in life, I learned who these guys were. And I'm going to jump ahead 30 years because this to me is really, really ironic. And God does have a sense of humor. I worked all my life in my early years with James Jameson, got to know Eddie Bongo, Robert White, Eddie Willis, all of the funk brothers, you know. And they, they were nominated for a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and they didn't have the money to get the star. And out of nowhere, 30 years later, I get a call from Eddie Willis and he's telling me the story. And I'm like, well, that's terrible. This funk brother should have a star on Hollywood Boulevard. And I'm thinking, man, this is a terrible story. You guys had four or five years to get the money together. You only got two months left. And after two months, it's over. You don't get the star. I mean, you know, for all time, the history, J.K., all this whole legend, got the movie and everything you guys did, it all goes away. He said, yeah. And we're talking for like half an hour on the phone. And he says, the punchline, I'll never forget this clause of it. He says, that's why I called you. Me? I'm not about to start Hollywood. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? He says, he says, yeah, we only got like four weeks left. And we needed, I think they need like $60,000 and whole thing. And a whole bunch of other stuff to talk to the board. So I had to talk to the chamber, get more time, because we ran out of time. It seemed like, and I'll never forget, I hung up the phone with him, thinking, man, that's a sad story. The Funk Brothers, they're not going to start Hollywood. Well, they got their Grammy, they got their movie, and nominated for Oscar, but they're not going to get their starting out money. Well, man, I'm giving you a very short version of the story because I can talk better. I actually raised the 60 grand and they actually got their star on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> and not only that, I now have a star on Hollywood Boulevard because I was nominated by Quincy Jones and I had all the credit. To get a star on Hollywood, you have to do something for the city of Hollywood, and you have to do something for someone else. And that's the thing that I did for someone else, who flipped the whole thing and just took me to that next level, where they actually nominated me the next year, and I got a star. And it, to make the story more, to show you how God does things in a really fun way, how about the Funk Brothers stars pointing like this, and my stars next to theirs pointing like this? 
<laughs> so we're looking at each other, right? And I got to know that James James is somewhere in heaven thinking to himself, are you kidding me? That punk over here. <laughs> SAT test. They gave me an SAT test and I scored 
right? Not only did I finish all the questions ahead of time, they said, first of all, nobody black in the ghetto of Detroit gets 98%, just not happening. So they made me take the test again. <laughs> <laughs> they said, you cheated, I don't know how you did it, but it was good at it, So they watched me, and I still scored 98%. And so I actually got into a college with 1.4 grade point average because I scored so high on the SAT test. So the guy came over my house and said, you know, this kid's not stupid, but he's not applying himself. He's just goofing around. So I said, okay. I really wish the guy hadn't came to my house, but he did. So now I'm stuck. I got to go to college now, okay? Parents happy as they could be. He's going to make it after all the kids in college. You know? My dad had been saving money for me to go to college like five years before I was even born. Okay, just to show he had tightened savings bonds, everything's straight now. And I'm gonna say six months into my college, I graduated early, so I hadn't turned 18 yet. And almost on my 18th birthday, or right somewhere there before, yeah, I was 17. I'm clear about that because I couldn't make my own decisions. That's what the real problem was. So I was in college with the first year, I think I graduated 16 and a half, 17. And Stevie Wonder called, right? <clears throat> And at that point, music from my mind, I had an eight track in my car. The only thing I had in my car was music from my mind. Like, every day I And I never heard these sounds with the movie. It was just jamming. And so Stevie Wonder was calling me on the phone. And I, you know, I said, I'm like, hell is Stevie Wonder? I said, yeah, right, click. <laughs> he called back up. I'm sure so that's for somebody who was, you know, fooling their voices. Everybody knew I only had my song. So I had up on him, I don't know, three, four times. And he called back. He says, you know, we, we, we keep getting disconnected. <laughs> and, you know, I said, no. You know, some things that weren't so nice. And he figured out, this young kid doesn't know who I am. He says, he says, hold on. And so he played me, I'll never forget, he played me the rhythm track, stripped down, a superstition. And I was about to hang up on the drums kind because of, the superstition is marching drums. And I was like, there you go, Steve Wonder. Then all of a sudden, just before I was about to go click, I heard dum 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 he called up, he says, well, what I want you to do, he says, first of all, you don't have to audition. I already heard from Mario Gale and a bunch of other people. Everybody I talked to says, you're the guy. So there's no audition here. What I want you to do is come to California. We're going to San Francisco first, and we're going to record an album for Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. I don't know, I didn't know who they were, but I figured out, man. And then he says, then we're going to go finish this talking book album that I'm working on, and then we're going to go on and do the 1972 tour with the Rolling Stones. I'm like, wow, Rolling Stones tour, tour, me like tour. He said, and the, the thing that got me in here is, first stop is California, California. I hear that, California, go be in California. I like this already. And so I went back to school, and the dilemma that day was, are we going to drop out of school, disappoint our parents, right? Not get that white collar job at Ford where you work in the office overlooking that green wall for 60 more years and make no money and never have a house in California where horse you drive away and you give up your dreams or are we going to bail, jump ship? <laughs> well, now, 
My decision was clear to me in my mind. That was never an issue. But it was my father and my mama who I loved so much. And I got really, really good help with it. Like I said, God has a sense of humor. I got really good help with it. Prior to that, two months earlier, there was a job where you designed a carpenter, and it was a two-month project, which pretty much made your grade for the whole class. That car project, I designed that thing perfectly. I mean, I had to work really, really hard. I made my parents proud of me. I'm going to stay at school, do the right thing. I'm a good kid. I'm going to do right. Well, guess what? I got on Friday night, and it was a Friday evening, I got my test score back, and I failed. Right? And I couldn't even ask the lady what was wrong until Monday morning. It seemed like the weekend was like eight days long. <laughs> So Monday morning, 8 a.m., I went to the teacher. I said, you know, I don't get this. I went over this all weekend, and my project is right. Now, this is the same time Steve's waiting on the answer. I haven't yet spoke to my parents because I'm trying to muster up the courage of what, what words I'm going to say and how this is going to go. And I turned the project in, and the lady looked at me, and we went over the numbers. She says, Mr. Parker. Mr. Parker, I'm only like 8, 17 years old. But Mr. Parker. Your project is wonderful. This is this part of work. Everything's great. But Ford likes their arrows three-eighths of an inch with a flare, and Chrysler likes their arrows a half an inch with no flare. You put Chrysler arrows on a Ford car. Oh, and Michigan, Detroit, you can't do that. So I failed you. That's it. You know, back to those words that you don't use. Are you kidding me? Everything on this drawing was 100% perfect. I would have had 100%, but she failed me because I put Chrysler arrows on a Ford car. And I'll never get it. I went to lunch, and I was now I'm heated up. I'm just pissed off now. And so there were a couple of my buddies, one name I can remember, Carrie Strickland, a friend of mine sitting in the lunchroom. And I had my Lincoln Continental, which I forgot to take out, I already purchased, which was my second car. I had my Lincoln Continental sitting in that, in that thing. And, uh, the guy was, uh, no, maybe I had the white car. No, just get my yeah, grandpa. Whatever, I had a nice sports car or something. Like and uh, the guys, guys in the lunchroom, they had had enough. They, they were done with me. They were like, let me tell you something. We're tired of hearing about you playing on records. We don't know no Marvin Gaye. You don't know Smokey Robinson. And the never didn't care. He, they had a sarcastic attitude. Like, we, we're up here. We've had enough. We don't want to hear from you anymore. And they said, he said words that I'll never forget. He says, if you were making all those records and money like you said, and you those guys, you wouldn't be sitting here with us. <laughs> and I said, that's the first thing that's made any sense to me. So I left my books, I left everything, and I just walked out the door, never to return. Yeah! That was it. Here's the question, and from an overview, 
Please explain to everybody how does one starting there go from thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions when their friends don't? Why you stop the millions? Tens of millions. I didn't want to break. Okay, okay. Humility. Oh, he, he already took me, he's a much humbler guy than I am. So how do you go from there? You mean financial-wise? Yeah, you know? tell them how you marry artistry and business. Well, again, I'm going to say, I think the subconscious is everything. I think once you convince your subconscious of what you're going to do, just about anything is possible. Um, in the beginning, I was never a singer, right? I, I'll attest to be a musician because I love to play music, and I, once I got to clarinet and everything, I just loved it. I love to play guitar. But I really didn't know anything about writing songs, I didn't know anything about producing, I didn't know anything about any of that stuff. And so that's what I, I, I would have told you I was a star before you knew that. Just that's just the way I felt about me as a human being, right? And to contrast that, at seven, eight years old, I used to get beat up all the time. So I was a nerdy kid. I know it's kind of hard for you to picture that. But I actually, at one point, I was the nerdy kid, and in my mind, I just decided, that's it, we ain't being a nerdy kid no more. We're going the other way. Money is, the, the, the real concept of money, I'm going to say, came from my dad. My dad was one of, he always taught me, even from an early age, you don't spend the money, son. You, you feed the golden goose, which is like your bank account, and you live off the interest, right? You live off the eggs that the golden goose gives you. That's why they have a phrase called, your goose is cooked. <laughs> right? If you shoot the goose and eat the goose, well, there you go. <laughs> but if you keep feeding the goose, no matter what happens, you have the goose. So the goose will give you something. Now, it may not be as much money as you want. It means maybe you should spend less money. But if you keep feeding the goose, you will always have some money. And the old thing that they say in the Bible, which the, which the United States government even lets you put your pension in retirement away, and my dad used to always say, if you take every penny that you've ever made and put away 10%, nobody would be broke. More than likely, 90% of whatever you have will suffice. If it isn't, you're going to be screwed up with the extra 10% anyway, you're going to blow it. That's just the truth. So if you always put away at least 10%, and you've been doing that, since the beginning, you have some money. It's just as simple as that. Nobody makes zero dollars, so you have some money. 100% right. But also, just to give everybody a little bit of a clue, tell them about some of the specific things that you did that those around you didn't do. Well, now we're going to go back to crazy man. <laughs> the dream gig that I always wanted to do, playing with Stevie Wonder and, and the whole thing going to the Rolling Stones, it was a wonderful thing. The girls were just as fabulous. I discovered women late in life. So that's just started a lot of so the ball is still the makeup. I was a late bloomer, but you know what? I'm a fast learner. They're all over the place in front of you. They want you to do certain things and you got extra tickets to the concert. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, I'll go with that. But it was never really my primary concert. I think Sylvester and Ollie and they they always like girls a lot more than I did. Now, I'm not saying I didn't like the girls, but I'm just saying I wanted to get ahead. I really wanted to make it. And so now let's fast forward to Stevie Wonder taught me how to write songs. He took a life into the little demos I did. And it seems to me, again, that I spent years with him. But I was only in the band with six months, probably probably only six months. And when he won the eight Grammys, we, he said, we got to have a special meeting. <laughs> Everybody just rubbed their hands together. Oh, we're going to get a raise. We've been working my butts off. Well, to our surprise, he actually gave everybody a big cut. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, just got eight Grammys you made that, that record. 
he made a pick and it was so low that I thought I could make more money in Detroit. You know, because that's just wrestling stuff. Right around that time, uh, since I since I quit the band, what do you think I'm gonna do next when I quit the band? Get my car <laughs> now I turned 18 years old, at the beginning 18 years old, and I can legally do what I want to do. And by this time, I've traded in my other car, which I think I only kept that car three, four months. And I bought a big Lincoln Continental town, town car, and so I'm going to drive this car to California. And so I tell my parents and everybody else, and they say, well, what are you going to do out there? This is, I don't know, but there's nobody shooting at me out there. <laughs> there's a lot of people shooting at me here. And you know what, it's not cold out there, so I'm gonna go out there. If I'm not doing anything here, I'm going out there. It's more music business out there. And so I spoke to my parents. They called all my friends. They, well, everybody thought I was crazy. But I packed up my car, and I said, I'll call you and collect. And when I get there, just as I was about to drive off, I know if you Jack Asher, one of the Funk Brothers called me up and said, before you leave, come to this session. Now, if the session is for Luther Vandross, right? And he was cutting the record in Detroit. And he says, here's the extra couple of grand you can take with you. I said, this is wonderful. Then, uh, right in the middle of us recording that record, McKinley Jackson called. He says, guess what? Lamont Dozier's in California. He says, he, he wants you to play on his album. We can't, we can't move you to California. I said, I don't worry about that. I'm going anyway. Right? He said, but when you get there, you'll probably spend a few days in Lamont's, Lamont's house. You know, Lamont cooks really well, <laughs> which he does. And he says, hey, we're going to guarantee you can do this album with us at ABCW. So I just got in my car, pointed west, drove to California, called my parents Colette, because they didn't have cell phones. So I called Colette when I saw the Pacific Ocean and got an apartment in Hollywood. It's pretty much what I did. Now, my next mission was to get Sylvester, Ollie, and my friends out of Detroit into California. We can't even get into that because that's a really hard, difficult story. But just know that I did make it happen a year and a half, a year later. And so hence we're all here. Um, upon arriving in California, I didn't really know anybody. I didn't know how I was going to make money. So I finally got me a little apartment in uh, West Hollywood. And to my surprise, everybody here was so polite. And they had uh, cartridge companies that would carry a guitar. You can charge double money that you got in the studio for a session of You can charge twice as much money. And these guys were paying, right? And so I called up my buddy Sylvester and all this. Man, these guys out here pay you a lot of money. Man, they just let you do anything, everything. And they got a lot more sessions out here. So that's a lot. And I'll never forget our other buddies, Andrew Smith and Bob Babbitt, who's one of the fun brothers, went to Philadelphia. And we talk on the phone regularly, you know, and as things progress, they're like, yeah, man, we work with Tom Bell. I said, yeah, you work with Tom Bell, what did you do this week? We did three, four sessions. This is nothing, I three, four every day. It's the matter with you guys. I'm getting rich out here. <laughs> to make a long story short, and so that's just speaking of finance, in my first year in California, I made over $100,000. Of 1970s. Of 1970s dollars. At 18 years old, I made over $100,000. And I didn't do drugs, I wasn't married, so I didn't do anything stupid, so I kind of put it away. <clears throat> now, again, as time went on, I started writing his songs, and I got a publishing, you know, not a publishing, but I got an advance from ASCAP, that's back when ASCAP would give us the money. You leave out one key thing. Go for it. There were a few other guys that were also doing, actually a lot of other guys were also doing six figures at the time. But uh, late at night, when other guys were out hanging out partying, Ray was doing something a little bit different. He had a four-track TX, 
and he was recording constantly, all the time. How do I know? Late night phone calls. Can you play a little piano? So that was one big thing. And that's before we get to the studio. Tell me about that. Well, it, it, again, things were progressing. I started writing songs and making money as a songwriter, as a musician. But it still occurred to me that I wasn't going to get my house with the horseshoe driveway. And I wasn't going to get these other things to happen. And more so than that, in my life, I'm a real music person, so I'm probably happy if you tell me I can make a living that playing the guitar and playing music. And Mike Mack, Don P, any one of us tell it at a younger age, even though we made it thus far, none of us really knew that was going to happen at age 40, 50, you know, some people, well, what happens at age 40, what happens at age 50? And I didn't really have enough money at the time to see my way clear for the next 60 years. Like, granted, I know I'm only like 18, 19, 20 years old, but at the time, that's what I was thinking. So, all the money I saved up playing guitar, which was a considerable amount of money, I think I had six figures in the bank at the time. I took it all out. I said, well, we're going to take all the money out and we're going to put it on the one. <laughs> and it's either going to happen or it's not. At which I was pretty much the laughing stock in the neighborhood. Wild used to laugh at me. All my friends would say, this guy has lost his mind. He's got a house, he has no furniture in it. And I bought all recording equipment because I spent so much money in the studios that I lost the money recording my brother's band and several other bands. And I figured out the only way I could keep recording, of which I think I spent maybe forty thousand dollars in nineteen seventy-three dollars, which is you could have bought a house. I spent that in studios trying to record, and all of it went bust. Okay, so I had another hundred grand that I took of real money and bought some equipment with it. At a time when people said, you can't do this at your house. And you can't. Before the home studio days. Before the home studio days. It just occurred to me that if I had this equipment at home, I could work out the details, work out the problems that was with my music. And the budget was so thin that uh, Ron Dozier's brother, Reggie Dozier, we hand-wired the studio ourselves with a soldering gun. And it took us at least a month. And we were up all night, every night, just soldering probably 20, 30,000 connections. Great, let me fast forward it just a little bit for the audience, only because we're a little short on time. Yeah, we got to do some I do, Yeah, I, I do have to tell you real quick, so everybody will know, that uh, Ray basically took his life savings, more than his life savings, invested in the studio in his own house at a time when people didn't do that. All the money with no record deal in sight or down the road or anything. Just completely talk about on spec. 100% on spec. And after the investment in itself, uh, a deal did transpire. The next thing we saw after that was a breakthrough record radio uh, with Jack and Jill. And a few years later down the road, we saw Ghostbusters. And the rest of that part of it is history. So that's what he did that was very different from uh, a lot of his compadres, and that is one of the reasons that uh, Ray was able to cover both bases, both artistically and financially at the same time. Now, only because uh, we're a little short here, let's take a couple of questions before we wrap up. I love questions. Go ahead, Mark. Uh, one question. How did you get together with Chaka Khan and Lucas? They were self-controlled. Oh, that's easy. That, uh, first of all, I met Shaka Khan when I was playing with Stevie Wonder. And she asked me to listen to her demo tape, and I wanted to bang her, period. 
So I gave her an address in San Francisco that I didn't even live at. I'm liberal. So when I actually met them out here, she was pissed off at me, okay? And I wrote my song for Barry White. He wouldn't cut it. And Andre Fisher lived next door to me, and he was afraid. He says, man, we got a record deal on ABC, but it's a new band we never had any hits before. So I was actually depressed and crying, like, I guess if I can't do nothing else with the song, I'll let, I'll let him cut it. So I went in the studio with him, played the guitar, and did the rest of the stuff. Then this girl comes in, pregnant, bald head, uh, kind of sexy body, but pregnant, bald head. And she's singing the song. She says, you don't even remember me, do you? No. She says, uh, she says, you blew me off last year. <laughs> you know, and you know, it doubled on me. I said, man, she can really sing. She sounds good, you know? We didn't know that song was going to be a hit. I mean, they were unknown, I was unknown, everybody was unknown. And the song just became a number one record. And, and so that's, that, was, that was the first one that you did, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm sure somebody might want to get a picture or two. So let's take just one more question. Oh, we got to have more questions. What time are we out of time? Did we talk too long? Yeah, let us talk too long. That's okay. Let's not get it out. I'll take you if there's a question. <laughs> I started songwriting with Stevie Wonder. He taught me how to write songs. I didn't know what it was before that. And the way he did it, when I said not just writing, the way he produced it in the studio, he showed me that. So I did my songs exactly the way he did. I played the instruments, I put the drums on glass, and you know, he showed me how to work the mixing console and that kind of thing. So I just did it like that. And just like anybody else, I, I thought everything I wrote was unfinished. I don't think I've ever made a record that's not finished. All my songs sound like demo tapes. So, so when you have songs, you say, my songs sound like demo tapes. I don't make it sound like you too is a finished record or you're on Duran. I don't think anybody finishes a song. But when you stop, it's finished. Yeah. And sometimes you need somebody to stop you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you're Well, listen, I, I wish we had a lot more time because we got more time. Take a few more questions. <laughs> All right, one more question. How did we talk so much? I told y'all not to let us talk that long. Jumping for years. What are you doing these days? What am I doing these days? Well, first of all, I'm building a new studio at my house because I just want to record and play live drums and all the rest of that stuff. I travel the world. Uh, a big coup for me because I wasn't singer. I sang the, this national anthem at the Detroit Tigers. Yeah. And we could have that. was a big because if you watch my unsung program TV, you hear Sylvester all the time. He can't sing. Well, I sung the national anthem without a band. And you pick the right key. And pick the right key. So yeah, so these days I'm doing a lot of stuff. I'm not really producing bands stuff like that because because talking to other people makes me crazy. You know, like they hire me to produce it and then they, they won't shut up and let you do it. So like if you don't want me to do it, you do it. So I'm, I'm really I'm making an '80s record right now. That I'm very proud of because I think it's slamming in the groove. And we're not gonna let Pharrell and all those guys just take over the music. I cut my own groove, so I'm, I'm cutting a record that sounds like we cut it in 1982 or 1983. And I got my old micro movie, the Phoenix thing, and it's turning out really, really great. So I'm really excited about that. And besides that, I'm having a great time traveling the world. So that's what I'm tennis every morning. There's just not enough hours in the day. I'm having a really, really great time. I'm glad to see it. Now, a couple more questions. You got a little time. Maybe two, ten. Come on. Over here. Okay, one more. I, I, I don't really write with other people. Um, sometimes if I 
idea to rhythm track and I hadn't finished it. You know, I, I gave one to Barry White, but we didn't actually sit in the room together and write the song. I had not figured out how to do that yet because I'm a big mouth guy and everything I do is right and everything everybody else does is wrong. It doesn't make me clash. You know, when I hear something in my head, I want it to go the way I want it to go. And you might even have a better idea, but I'm just so hard-headed. I want it to go the way I want it to go. And that's just, you know, so I haven't really, I haven't had success. That's not true. I did one song with Herbie Hancock because he, he just let me slow his chords down. So every, when he was playing with every eighth notes, I, I made it like two, three bars each chord. But other than that, it's difficult, you know. So I haven't had a lot of success doing that. So I'm not the guy that Okay, there's one thing I have to say. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for coming. Uh, not everybody's willing to share as much about their life and tell you what's happening. I feel like we just got started. I don't know. We did just, we did just get started. Time is this much is story, I was like, I know time is just fine, but on behalf of ASMAC, as well as myself, I have to thank you for doing this because I know it took a lot of time out of the middle of your day. Not to be stupid and trust anybody. By the way, let's talk about that right quick. Yeah. And I'm gonna pass it quick. I wrote a song at home, and and I went. I was used to work for Richard Perry all the time. He used to pay me triple scale. He had my name on the concrete in front of Perry my studios when I was 19 years old. And so I thought this, I thought he was my friend. And at lunch break, we didn't have big tape recorders or drum machines, so I had my friends Ed Green and other guys play this group that I was working on. But this is, I wrote the song at home. I had it done. And he came in at the middle of lunch break and heard it and said, man, I like that group, Kim Cunnelia. I said, well, you know, that's my song. And he agreed, that's my song, it's going to be my percentage. The whole thing, can you put, get the band and put that track down? So I organized the track, put it down. <clears throat> to make a long story short, I got zero credit. The song was a number one pop record, number one R&B record, and won an R&B record of the year and won a Grammy. And I got zero, said nothing. And by the way, Ray's told this story many times publicly. You have never heard the anybody disputed. Yes, he's even it's written as even on television. Go, go. Yeah, since it's time for posterity, can you tell us a little bit about the ghost culture? Song how how about this Well, see, still how you gonna close out without the ghost culture? <laughs> Let's not make a big deal out of that. And I'll tell you why. My parents had gotten sick, so at the time I really sort of thought I made enough money, I could live the rest of my life. I was kind of, you know, I was very, very blessed. And it's not like I retired, like I'm cocky, I retired. No, it was more so because my mom and dad had been in my life through everything, we're really getting sick. So I was starting to spend more time in Detroit, and I just kind of shined away and didn't want to do anything. Well, about a year later, I got a phone call from Gerald Bussey, who said, let's go. I want you to go to Boston, here's you on a new edition, right? And it ain't going to Boston, it's cold in Detroit, it's cold in Boston. I don't see the point in that. And besides, I'm not working anymore, I'm doing something else. Then, as, as I was going through this depressed state, because my, my dad had cancer, my mom was starting to get Alzheimer's and that sort of thing, <clears throat> this guy was very clever. He called me back and said, let's go get a jet, go to Bahamas. I'm thinking, man, I, I can use a little toothbrake in the Bahamas. <laughs> Went to the Bahamas, party so hard. We actually missed the band performing. 
Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at www.asmac.org. This is Kim Richmond, president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, First Wednesday's workshops, and our annual Golden Score Awards Banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk. Editing was done by myself to prepare for broadcast. Thank you.